2: Hello and welcome to the first Fighting in the War Room quarter quell. As you may know, we invented the term quarter quell for sure on our old podcast and we're bringing it back to celebrate 25 episodes. We changed the format of our episodes and we do something a little bit different. In the past, we have told stories, we have picked movies that influenced us as children, we have had our family members on. That was another great one. All the old quarter quells, even though they were all from Operation Kino, are available at fightinginthewarroom.com tagged quarter quelled slash quarter quelled, you just have to find them individually dave you know these things
0: you could find them individually but if you go to fighting in slash xxv for this particular episode you're listening to right now there'll be links to all of those plus the films we'll be talking about so if you want to follow along this is a little bit like the lost experience episode in that manner
2: It's very exciting. This quarter quell, we are talking about our experiences as filmmakers. Some of you have written in asking us for advice (laughs) about filmmaking in the past. You have not asked me, and there's good reason, which we will discuss in a minute. Uh, But we're all going to dig back into our film past. And if you want to watch any of these movies, they are also available at Fighting in the War Room slash XXV.
3: So Possibly can, the um, most embarrassing thing we've done yet on the show.
2: It might be. If you want to uh, pause this podcast and go watch those films and then come back and listen to us discuss them, you are more than welcome to do that. You will be a uh, part of the discussion. a film and English major in college and until about the summer before my junior, before summer before my senior year, I thought that I wanted to make a senior thesis film, which is what all the cool kids in the film department did. Every year they would have the thesis film showings. They were very fun. I had kind of, you know, various ideas for dance sequences that I wanted to do and, you know, how I could... Take all the knowledge that I'd been getting from watching classic movies I'd never seen before to put them into movies like any other film student, I think. And then that summer between junior and senior year, my car got wrecked. And when I realized that I could use the insurance money from that car getting wrecked to get another car that would give me the freedom to drive around campus and drive home for vacation, or drive home for breaks and all of that, or you put that money toward a student film... I chose to get the new car, which was when not a new oh, car, but a oh, used car.
3: I was not waiting. Yeah, that was yeah, not, not what not I was the expecting. I thought that was going. <laughs> I was really rooting for th- art on that one.
2: I know, and I chose against art, which is why for this quarter quell, I do not have a film to present you. The one film that I made in college was made in the class called Sight and Sound, which was kind of the basic film production techni- techniques class that every film major who wanted to make a thesis had to take. At the time, I thought I wanted to make a thesis, so I took this class. And to be honest, I'm glad that I took it. I learned how to operate a 16 millimeter camera and how to change a roll of film and how to set f stops and apertures and use an, uh, an edit table, which is completely antiquated technology, even in 2004 when I was making my student film. And now we call I call it don't
3: a flatbed. It's a flat. Yeah, what
2: did bed. you call it?
0: We uh, we have one of those in my office, a modern post production facility, as like this little monument thing that we walk <laughs> by to the elevator. like a totem. Yeah, it's you,
3: like this is what we used to
0: do.
2: You like kiss your fingers and walk by it every day. And
3: NYU used old German steambecks. Steen, S T E E N B E C K, and I'm pretty ours sure called... they got them from World War II. They were old. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think we. I went to the New York Film Academy before, like during high school, over one summer, and I think we used NYU's broken Steenbecks. They're secondhand Steenbecks. So,
2: ours were not called around. Steenbecks. They had a name that I pretty can't covered in now. blood. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> anyone, yeah, anyone who remembers names of other, um, you know, flatbed editing machines, can let me know what I what I've forgotten. So for this class called Sight and Sound, at the end of the year, you make a six-minute film. And there are people who have taken this class who have made six-minute films and who have submitted them to Slamdance and gotten in. And those people were not like me. I had, I think, a successfully simple idea, which is one of the things that people seem to struggle with the most. They would kind of have an idea for their short movie and try to... Even even to have, I think, two plot threads in a six-minute film is basically impossible. And you guys may argue with me later on. But based on what I saw from college films that was definitely the case so i basically had the idea to make a virtually silent film silent film within a dialogue because when shooting on 16 one of the hugest challenges was getting your sound to synchronize and getting and using the uh oh the nagra sound machines i have not thought about that word in a long time and, and anyway recording dialogue yeah, was live that on real set to was,
3: real was that like magnetic yeah. tape okay yeah we did, we, yeah we did that too
2: yeah, it sucked. All of the. I think maybe if I had taken a digital film production class, which was not available to me at the time, it would have been, perhaps my fate would have been different. But I had an idea to you, make. You would a film have been
3: that, Lena Dunham. You would have been. I, making yeah, Mumblecore exactly. Films. I would be
2: so famous right now as a filmmaker. Um, so I had the idea to set an entire film to ELO's "Mr. Blue Sky," which, like everybody else at that age, I had discovered from being on the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind soundtrack. Um, and I think maybe a year later, some like some ad used that song, like very prominently, and I felt like I had been co-opted by advertising culture.
1: And it's basically the
2: story... (laughs) No, no, I was there first. Come on. Um, So it's basically about a girl who was a friend of mine who acted in my movies for God only knows what reason, um, who woke up to that song, kind of her alarm goes off, and then she goes about her day kind of in this jubilant mood because that is a jubilant song. And every kind of gesture she does to be happy, like skipping downstairs or, you know, taking her newspaper and tossing it away joyfully, winds up screwing some guy and hitting him in the face or tripping him up or... You know, splashing him with a puddle. And so it's basically about this one dude who's walking in her footsteps all day and can't seem to catch a break while she is having the best day of her life. And then the, the, can you, can you guess how it ends? Can you, guys, can you guys guess how it ends based on this setup? Do they, do they get they, together? Do they get together? No. Oh. Well, they meet each other, but they don't, there's, there's no romance.
0: That is the difference between your film and the male gaze, Katie.
2: <laughs> Does he
1: continue having a terrible day and she profits?
2: I would love it if she had, like, made money. Uh, No, basically, he finally confronts her, and uh, I think he says, what the fuck, precisely, because I was edgy. Um, And she puts her headphones on his ears, and then he listens, and then they dance away together. And it's, I mean, there are plenty of short, silent films that have just as complicated a plot, but are infinitely better made. And when I think back about it, I feel like the gist of it worked pretty well. It, is not, it's, it was a fun movie to watch, like, you know, because it doesn't have any dialogue, because it's a song that people know and like, like, it moves along well. And kind of my nightmare was screening it for classmates and, you know, hearing everybody shift in their seats and trying to express something really deep and meaningful. I never really did very well with the idea of, like putting yourself out there in art and kind of expressing something personal and emotional, which always seemed completely terrifying to me. And there are people in my class who then for their senior thesis, like one girl made a film about her mother dying of cancer using old home movies and it was devastating. So people Mm. with that kind of courage amaze me. I mean, is that
0: sort of a uh, evident of Wesleyan where you were going to school or
2: you- no, I think it's more about me personally like I'm the person who decided I wanted to be a critic and you know be the observer and the person who's kind of standing outside and seeing how emotional things work like but if I think if, if, I mean
0: was the film meant to manipulate us, or was the film your expression to the song because I don't want you to sell yourself short if you actually did do something just because you didn't like how it came out?
2: Oh, I mean, I, I, isn't it I did something that was, like, personal to me or that I did something that was successful? What?
0: Well, it's like I've also made a whole bunch of crappy, and I'm sure we all did, you know, like, song-motivated short films. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between, like, you have this image in your head and you make it work because of, like, you're master of the technical skills of filmmaking and actually trying to express yourself even though the medium is sort of wrote as a college... Uh, music video short film. So do you yeah. think you accurately expressed yourself?
2: Yeah, I think I accurately expressed what was to me at the time. I mean, that was not just that song in particular, but kind of other songs like I had been, you know, as an early iPod adopter, like that experience of walking through the world with a particular song as your soundtrack. I mean, that's been in other films. You see that in commercials all the time like that is a very that's a powerful, powerful feeling to me. But it also was a way for me to kind of Figure out a way to show what I knew and express. You I mean the thing? Probably the thing that I like best in cinema is a dance number. And had I gotten, had I decided to make that student film, I probably would have attempted to do some kind of musical, like full fledged musical number. Which I cannot even imagine how hard that would have been, given how much I knew at the time. And I mean, I don't think of it as being a failure. I think, I think I got a good grade. I don't remember anymore. Well,
3: you, prob- um, you probably but- learned something about the technical craft. <laughs> you of get- Oh my god, I learned today. so much. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, well, I spent all, all of those
2: nights sitting at that editing machine trying to learn how to splice everything together. And it was just a lot about having the patience to find that exact frame to cut out and knowing when to let a beat land. And and trying to sync to a song was so freaking hard. I mean, the rhythms of that, especially when you're editing on film where you really are snipping frame by frame. I, I imagine if I had done this digitally that that part of it would have been a lot simpler. But it kind of taught me a lot about the meticulousness that you need For filmmaking that you need to really know what you want and to, especially if you're making something lighthearted, you have to let those scenes, you have to make those scenes hit on exactly the right beat because otherwise they lay flat and we see this in, you know, professionally made comedies all the time. And the other thing that I I think, I think I enjoy the editing more than the actual process of being on the set. And I think that was the part where I realized really realized I couldn't make a film again is when you're standing out there and it's cold and you've had someone do something four times. And then you realize that the film wasn't in the camera the right way and you have to go back and do it again. And that happened on another short film that I made in the same class that I realized I had the camera at the wrong speed the whole time and it was in slow motion and I had to redo the whole thing and I wanted to die. I, think, is that the sense?
1: Biggest, I think that's the biggest thing that people, you know, I think sort of at the bedrock of this whole conversation will be how valuable the experience of filmmaking is to writing and thinking about film and i think mm-hmm. one of the most valuable lessons is ha- where films are actually made there's such an obsession uh on physical production on on the set uh but really i sort of liken that to um uh, you know filling up your grocery carton when you're preparing to cook a meal i mean it's it's Really not, uh, to me at least, and this mileage will vary, but to me, and it sounds like maybe to you as well, uh, it's grueling and not necessarily by any stretch of the imagination the most satisfying part. I mean, I think uh, cooking the actual dish in the editing room and and really seeing what you have and and where the movie really comes together is the pleasure. And yet you
3: find it difficult to appreciate editing in a film, in a finished film.
2: Ooh! I, I
0: Wait, find it difficult. I think this
3: conversation might come up later. You, I mean, you do. Yeah, we, let's you've said on that David Before later. that, it's it's hard to detect
1: or it's undetectable, and I, I you can't really that. comment on the editing. I, I, I didn't mean that, that for myself. I just uh, I think that in general, um, it's you know it tends to be an invisible process. Uh, you know, of course, you can see every edit for the most part, but um, it's it's hard to know where. Uh, you know, it's hard to it's hard to know where... The, I don't know what the fucking expression is here. Where the cookies were made? Where the glue... <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's
2: hard. Yeah. Where, the, where the glue factory was built? <laughs> where the glue factory the is. Oh, I like how, that how one better, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell in other people's movies, but you definitely know, making your own, that when it's you stuck in this room with what you shot, you... That's where it comes together. But the part that I found harder was being out in the cold with people and telling them do it again and saying, no, we have to stick around until we get this right and not wanting to kind of just – the pressure of having a bunch of people who are there for what you're telling them to do, in my case completely for free, and wanting to treat them well and not wanting them to be at your – You know, to be suffering because of what you're asking them to do. And I realized that in professional filmmaking, this is less of a problem unless you're Lars Monterey or Michael Bay. (laughs) But I had a really hard time with just being that kind of leader. And it's interesting because I'm an editor and I am in charge of people now, but it's a completely different context. It's that idea of here's my idea, here's my film, here's my art, and you were going to do this for me. I always lost. I always would always lose track of the finished product, and just kind of want to get out of there and go do it on my own, which you can't do if you're making a live action film. And I think that was that was the main thing I couldn't imagine doing again. To this
1: make will be a, a recurring theme. Film. I feel. <laughs>
3: yes. Well, it's, it's it's interesting because I think there's tiers of responsibility. Like I've I've heard Alex Ross Perry say, director, writer Alex mm-hmm. Perry say that um, making a no-budget film where it was just him and three people making a movie was much easier than making a film with like 10 crew or 20 crew or 30 crew um, because he just had to answer to less people which means you're, there's less plates spinning you're just doing everything you're running around, it's a one-man operation and suddenly when you have more crew and perhaps a, a, just a larger scale of a film you are still in charge of everything, but... I mean, suddenly having answers for everybody becomes a much more stressful time.
1: It's not, I mean, for me at least, and maybe, Katie, this speaks to your experience as well, it's not too different from being an, a nervous host of a party where you need hmm. buy-in from everybody involved. I mean, not everybody does, but I, in my own experience, uh, have felt a tremendous pressure of for, for eliciting buy-in for everybody on my crew and everybody in my cast. It is imperative to me, um, and more so than it probably should be, and more so than is... Uh, is best for the final product that everyone be passionate and involved in what we're doing and understand what we're doing. I want everybody, you know, from my main actors to uh, you know the people who are catering the film to read the script and be familiar with yeah, what's never going to happen.
3: Never never going to happen
1: because I want everyone to feel uh, a certain ownership and a certain responsibility to what's happening and a certain desire, more than anything, a desire to be there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that that is definitely one of the biggest sort of psychic challenges that uh, I've had.
2: Yeah, and again, I think that's something that you get more easily on even semi-professional film shoots where there's any sense of like people's careers or buy-in or any you know money. Because for me, it was friends doing me a favor when
3: there's money and that was yeah,
2: yeah, or not even money, but like I mean, Mm, on student films that were better, people who acted in them were like knew they were part of something that was working, and I you know maybe if I'd got out of my own head, I would have had that feeling making my own tiny film too. But that sense of buy-in is really important and something that. I think to be a successful director, I mean, I, I think that's why being a director is really hard, that you have to be willing to boss those people around and make them buy in. Well, I think the
3: actors are giving themselves over to the film in a different way than, you know, it takes more convincing to get your three grips on board for sure. film, who are equally vital, um, but yeah. really just want to get their lunch right now.
1: I think it's hard. Well, it's hard to understand. In well, feed people the, on your film. I mean, I, oh, oh, yeah, oh, oh, that is oh that God. is my and away. <laughs> very coffee, thing. coffee, coffee,
3: coffee, <laughs> coffee. That's that, the only lesson. Actually, <laughs> that is, is a that critical, producing part.
1: note. I always, you know, always have food. But I think um, for me, I always have trouble understanding why actors are the way that they are (laughs) it's hard for me to uh um get inside definitely bring this back up this will come back i
0: think we should i want to pivot back to katie for one more question which is that is there anything about the experience that is like fostered a desire in you like even like on your iphone in your backyard to make another visual narrative in the future
2: not to make but i liked the editing process especially the the one time i did get to use final cut it was on a sound project and i loved doing that and i like assembling things i think maybe in another life i would have been one of those super cut on youtube people um the yeah the shooting in the backyard thing no way put the but the podcast yeah, together narrative.
3: sometime in my- <laughs>
2: yeah yeah you guys have to teach me how to do that but this yeah, is this just exactly. seems like a convenient way for you guys to convince me into producing the pod- podcast so and we've accepted katie <laughs>
0: so for my film i'm going to talk about little dude and this is a movie that was actually just released for this podcast because i've been sitting around on it because the drive that has its real audio tracks got busted so let me bring you around to why that's important in filmmaking I decided to move to New York and I wanted to be in movies in television when I was 18 years old and this took the form of screenwriting at NYU and I got my degree and that was fine and I met a very talented director who suggested that we start our own company uh, basically to produce our own. At that time, music videos was a viable way to produce your way sort of into actual work Uh, That ended up being sort of the tail end horrible years where we did a couple music videos for not a lot of money and realized that was not the venue we needed to go to. So we started shooting a lot of commercials and helping people out on the production level. And um, towards the tail end of that, I was sort of getting ready to spin the company down. She got a nice job out of it. I got a nice job out of it. And it sort of served its purpose as a company you make directly out of college And uh, I decided to try to get more of my pure voice instead of having learned production through shepherding other people's voice uh, into uh, presumably the internet because I learned from fundraising for other people's films that although it's, you know, a workable system for me, I don't exactly exactly necessarily like doing it. Exactly necessarily. That's how much I don't like exactly necessarily doing it. Um, So I decided to set out to prove that I could make a series of comedy shorts for free. Instead of writing something new, I went back and plumbed something I wrote for another group that was trying to make a series of comedy shorts, where all they told me is they were going to have four cast members and one was a woman. So I wrote a whole bunch of scripts using just the numbers one through four that are completely gender neutral, and one of those scripts was Little Dude. Uh, I ended up naming the characters after my friend Julian and myself, because the dialogue sort of goes with the rhythm of people who are yes-anding each other, (laughs) as if you were uh, really good friends or an improv group. Uh, And sort of the logic of the short is built around that. And the short is essentially two scenes. One is when um, Dave convinces Julian that there is a little dude living inside of him who could hear what they're saying, but they can't hear him. And he communicates through notes that Dave has to barf up on the floor. And the second scene is uh, the little dude wants a pizza, supposedly. And so it's revealed that the first scene was storytelling to a pizza guy who then doesn't believe it until another note is hacked up. And he eventually capitulates and gives them free pizzas. So the reason that this short took the form that it did and the reason that my shorts take the form that they do is I don't really like shorts that are strictly just a punchline. I've been to a lot of film festivals. They always put them in a block, so you don't know if your punchline short's going to be near an experimental short or a 20-minute short, and so you really have to make sure that your short is very self-contained and has a reason for existing outside of just telling somebody a really good joke. Or I don't want to, like, cause any offense to Katie, but if you (laughs) want to find commercially success for your short... I would not set it to any sort of specific copyrighted music.
2: Yep, that is not what, what I had in mind at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, but uh, different goals for different projects. So I did this basically to like catch the attention of your college humors and your whatnot who would take me on, and eventually got me a job at UGO, and then that company got sold off, and then I had to bounce back. Not important. The important thing is that it, the first scene in this short sets up the stakes for the second scene, and the second scene is a joke, but it doesn't completely resolve. So you could also think your way into the possibility
1: that Sequals, this guy is. Fic- oh, I'm sorry. And, and speaking yeah, of sets, where where was this uh, film shot? <laughs> I think Good God, David! Was I was right getting credits to all do. of that.
0: I'm still in the monologue p- portion of telling people about <laughs> Little Dude. So that's this what is I too wrote, urgent. I, I'm, I have to break <laughs> in. Okay, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. So that's what I wrote. It was very, it was the thing that I thought was actionable. I uh, gave it to two producer friends of mine, one named Erin Death, that is her real name. She would like me to tell you that, and the other name Elizabeth McKenzie. And I was like, can we do this for free? And they were like, give us two weekends. And the nice thing about producer people is that they're always the ones negotiating fees for stuff. So they accumulate a whole bunch of favors. So in this case, we got like Grandma Rose's pizza. And because we'd worked with David, we got to shoot in David's apartment.
1: And as a little bit of trivia for the little yep. dude IMDb page, uh, you can see in the background a massive poster from the subway, the French subway for Marie Antoinette, the Sofia Coppola film.
2: That's how I knew which, it was
3: your apartment.
1: Which uh, during <laughs> That's a how you know the two guys in the movie are
3: douchebags.
1: <laughs> wow which during a party some uh, shortly after filming uh nothing to do with dave i don't think uh the poster vanished and is still gone and i can't find i would you know even to replace it this giant giant poster i can't find it on ebay or anywhere it is one of the greatest enduring mysteries of my life where that poster went nobody knows nobody nobody is squealing anyway carry on just, just a well, fun fact
0: to be continued possibly the mystery of the subway poster anyway and then so i had my locations and i had my timetable and i had a sound guy who said he would do it for free and i had some director friends who owned their camera they just bought their camera because they were starting their own production company and i was like hey you want to learn to use your camera for free and they said of course and so brought them on and then i turned to my good friend matt patches because he said he had been in an improv group with some awesome dudes and they didn't have to be dudes, they were all just numbers at this point, but Patches hooked me up with some awesome improv actors who, They were the littlest all,
3: dudes that I knew.
0: <laughs> it, it was fun meeting with them, because we had one meeting in, I think, Bryant Park in between other meetings for other people, and we all no, got coffee. No, it was
3: Washington Square Park to make it even more New York University-ish, and I, yeah, well, I auditioned I mean, with them that's true that's not the meeting i'm talking oh, about you auditioned yes. for little dude i think i just read against people i was a vital part of the like i was the i was the actor you didn't see i was the uh what was the guy who army hammer <laughs> josh over.
2: uh josh something <laughs>
0: you probably yeah. could have been in little dude you just you just gave me better people that's, that's your own
3: damn that's fault. My damn fault
0: lesson like for, for
3: budding actors never recommend your more talented friends
0: <laughs> the day before we shot, because we knew we'd have to be on schedule and at these locations specific times where they'd ask for money and money we didn't have, we met the day before in Bryant Park and went over the script with the actors, basically where I asked them if they have any questions, which, as a writer, sort of pains me because I think it's all there, but sometimes they need a little help finding it all there, and as a producer, I've learned you basically just have to ask that of everybody or they're going to think you're horrible, so you sit down and you answer the questions, but I was so surprised that these guys immediately got the story thrust, their characters were immediately got why there were two scenes, and like had basically nothing to add that wasn't uh, absolutely amazing. Wait, and, having like, it was to
1: have a discussion with your actors about the content of the script frustrates you?
0: Occasionally, <laughs> uh, yes. just get it,
1: you doofs. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that may not be the most helpful quality when it comes to being a, a filmmaker.
0: Yes, So well, see, that's also the other thing, is also in this entire process, I've never said that I want to direct it, I'm letting other people do things, I have the script, I'm throwing people together, but I realize I'm making them do it for free, so whatever. But that ended up paying big dividends, because we shoot it, and then our editor did it for free, and totally got the comic timings, and put some more in, he put the uh, uh, Wang Chung song actually in, it was just no song that was going, he going to dance to nothing. And then
2: really? No, no music at all?
0: I mean, we had ideas for a vague beats per minute, so the animator could animate to it, but it wasn't until I got the first edit back that it was obviously that song. Or at least that song was perfect enough that I saw it and was so happy that i had found the editor willing to do that extra work. And then I got the animation plates done by a dude that was trying to uh, get extra work with my company, and then we did end up, after he did Little Dude for us for free, giving him a ton of extra work, and he did an amazing job in going above and beyond and making it look like it's uh, actually going through the guy's t-shirt when you see the light did, shining Wait, did you him. know
3: him before recruiting him? Because I think that's an important question, because... For people who dare to dip their toes into special effects or animation while making, you know, a no-budget movie, I don't know. I, I I feel awkward asking people for free work, but maybe you have to take the plunge. Maybe you have to do it. I did, but I didn't maybe know you him, knew this but guy, it, and it was okay.
0: I didn't know him. Um, I was he was a friend of one of the other producers. But in terms of his benefit, I definitely said that I would pass other things his way, and um, as my. Positioned in my normal job as an animations producer on a cable show, he thought that gave enough weight to do an amazing job, or he's just a great person. I'm gonna go with great person because I gave him like <laughs> I gave him another did he know General Electric job. You would job never
3: give he... him work again.
0: Yeah, no, I gave him another job and he blew their socks off. And I hope he's still working oh. with them, but. It, you know, you gotta have all this goodwill if you're making stuff for free, otherwise you run into the Katie problem where people aren't communicating on set and then things get expensive. And it's, I expect
2: that to be called the Katie problem from now on.
0: The Katie problem is just being too nice. It's the opposite of the Michael Bay problem. Mm-hmm. Anywho, uh, so, and then I got all these animation plates back and I got the edit back and everything was great. I just wanted to tweak something with the sound mix and in transporting the rugged drive, it took a fatal fall in one of my bags. And I could recover it for a couple hundred dollars, I realized. But that would sort of violate the whole thesis of trying (laughs) to do it for zero dollars. So I was able to pull a MP3 of most of the sound files out. And the mix that you see is the very, very crappy mp3 mix and the only reason that it hasn't been released up until now is because i cannot get the core files out without violating this stupid rule that i made for myself but you still have the
2: drive that got wrecked
0: oh yeah i I mean don't throw out a drive just to get wrecked you don't know what like cd scratches used to be impenetrable until they made that goo katie that's technology is gonna save my old crap and maybe for free yeah, anyway, but I love that, that you guys all now get to see it because everybody involved uh, all decided on a made-by-credit, which I thought was really great because everybody just sort of pitched in where they needed to pitch in, and uh, things were done for free, and everybody laughed, and nobody regretted
3: it. I, I really want to know if the film is exactly the script that you wrote. I, I, I mean, it was. it's been so long since I've read that script that you wrote, but I'm curious how much you came up with while you were making it and if, that, if the no-budget aspect of this project meant you just had to get exactly what was on the page, you're not Judd Apatow shooting 80 takes with lots of impro- improvisation despite you having improv actors, I assume, but I don't know.
0: Right. I mean, Kevin Gottlieb, who plays the pizza guy, is the only one who improvs off-script and still stays in the film. Um, his delivery was really good, and he picked up on calling the other guy Tiny Tim because the actor happened to be on crutches at the time and we didn't have time to, like, let him heal and I didn't want to recast him because he was so good and willing to puke up the piece of paper that I soaked in uh, pizza grease and honey.
2: Wow. It's pretty I mean, sweet. there's no saying that someone who's on crutches can't have a demon growing inside
3: him. Yeah, and, you know, in fact, there's lots a of people probably would have do. to be on crutches, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't know. This is definitely the least filmmakery short that we're going to be talking about today because it's very obvious for me that even though I didn't direct it, I did sort of do like mini storyboards just for planning sake because I'm always a proponent of planning because that's what's going to save you money and time, and you want both of those things. Um, but you could tell that I it definitely, you know, grew up as a young, young child adapting Calvin and Hobbes strips and stuff because it's all squares and it basically runs like a comic strip in both in beats and the way it looks. And you know what? That's how it's supposed to run. So I was about to say, I, that's, I like that it.
3: is still a choice, right? You feel yeah. like you could have gone a different direction. You're making choices here. I feel like you're undervaluing your filmmaking in Little Man. Well, I mean, it has I'm animation, which means... or Little, little Dude. Uh, little, is Little Man the, the Waynes
0: brothers? Uh, yes oh, that's, that's, those, no. that's those viral tapes too that I didn't
3: want to anyway not important but doesn't the animation itself require a lot of work I mean or is it something that can be done so easily now it's funny because you made this film much more recently than David has made his film or the film that I'll be talking about um, and technology has changed so much it's, it kind of amazes me what I couldn't do then and what you could, can e- so easily do now
0: yeah, I mean, it's... This is... I could have made the other... I think I wrote two other shorts. One was called Sex on the Crapper, and nobody no, wants I, to No, I touch, read that. I remember reading yeah, that. <laughs> no one wants I to read that punchline. threw
3: up a little in my mouth.
0: <laughs> yeah, no one, to, no one wants to get to the punchline of a script called Sex and the Crapper. Uh, the other one was called Tots, and I turned it into a short story about a guy who found a frozen ear in his tater tots one day. Um but they're all pretty easy to make and that's they're engineered that way because my dictum in writing it was write it for this amount of characters that we could shoot for nothing so all you really know you're going to have is like a living space and an exterior space we lucked out with the pizza parlor but uh, you know we would have had to find a way around that or cho- chosen another short i don't know what i mean I don't, I don't.
2: It sounds like, other than the sound issue, this is pretty much exactly the movie you wanted it to be.
0: Yeah, it was a fairly simple execution, and I was more happy to collaborate with people than I was slavish to a vision that I had in my head. Do as you, long as you know the dialogue sort of stayed
3: the same, do you feel like it's it's a calling card for you? I know I feel like a lot of people make short films so that they can kind of parade them around for other projects, um, but that doesn't always lead to the best end product or or the finished film uh, when you feel like it's going to be a springboard for something else. I think we see that a lot in kind of cheesy sketch comedy that people make for YouTube or or fan films. This is often the problem with fan films, in my opinion, uh, that they always are springboards for other things. What I find refreshing about uh, little, Little Guy... Dude, little dude. Little I can't. I I cannot remember the name of this film. <laughs> little man, little dude. Um, is that, is that, uh, it doesn't see, that's exactly what Katie said. This is what you want. But maybe, I don't know, is there something missing from this film for you? Or could you, do you wish it could have been bigger or tighter? Or how do you improve it?
0: Uh, I wish I had had real sound, but basically, if it wasn't for this episode of Fighting in the War Room, it would have never come out. It just would have been something I watched on weekend and showed to people I was dating.
2: Wow. Well, I'm glad that we got to bring it to the world and uh, not just your uh, endless string of girls. You're like well.
3: Matthew Barney. You just make films for you. <laughs> and maybe That's, the museum, I've, if they're lucky. Yes, Exactly. Um, okay, so I, I made two sizable films back in my film school days at, also at NYU with Dave. But I was a younger year than Dave. Um, I don't think we ever met in college, Dave. Maybe we did. Maybe we crossed paths. You were forgettable at our Tisch School of the Arts somewhere. <laughs> Not that you recall, apparently. Uh, that's sad. Yeah, for some reason, here's the, actually, this is something to note. Um, at NYU, the directors and the film students were, like, in another bubble than the writers. And that always really bothered me. Like, I love working with writers or vice versa. I love writing and working with directors. Um, and that was just not a collaboration that the school was nurturing. And not, and not a collaboration a lot of people sought. Uh, and myself included, I, I should have worked my ass off to a friend. I knew a lot of writers, but they were just not writing for the screen for people. So if you are in college or if you are if you were thinking, oh, I'll just be a writer director, I'll write all my own projects. I would really steer people away from that, actually, just for at least to experiment working with writers and collaborating. Be your, You can write your own shit if you want to. But I I'd yes. give it a spin. Uh, working
0: from the other those. side of that, I definitely agree as well. I missed writing for real people during college.
3: Uh, so I made two films, and Dave urged me to talk about my second film that I made my senior year of college. My first film uh, you can watch. It's on v- my Vimeo account. It's called Alone, and it's about Japanese internment camps, or it's about taking families out of their homes and putting... Starting it in off Japanese nice and camps. light. Yeah, you yeah, know, easy, I know, easy first what? step. Well, you know, I took, I took... I went where I my mind wandered. I was interested in it, and it was actually I think it is a more eloquently eloquently designed film. I just I knew that film back to you know front to back. I, I knew every shot. I felt like I really had a handle on the script. That that went very easily, even though it was my first big production. My second one, I, I obviously wanted to be more ambitious, and I think. The problem with Mutter Tongue, this film that I made, um, is that it, that it's too ambitious. I think afterward I learned that um, it's based on a short story. It's actually I found this story Mutter Tongue by author Brian Evanson, who's written quite a few books and short stories, and um, this one won the O. Henry Prize, so it was in a book, a short story collection of O. Henry Award winners, and um, I found the story. And I, I really wanted to make it into a film. It's about a guy who all of a sudden, for no reason, um, he, I mean, no explainable reason, he starts losing his ability to speak what he's thinking. So he'll say words, and different words will come out. And it's about him dealing with this problem and kind of curling up in a ball, not knowing how to deal with it. I found it really interesting. Maybe it's my love for Groundhog Day, unexplainable problems. Um, it's something I thought could be cinematic, something that could be balancing Dialogue with visuals, whereas opposed to my first film was very visually driven, very little dialogue. Uh, This is something I wanted to play with the drama side of things because I had a very adverse reaction to um, my colleagues in film school who were, you know, music video people, VFX wizards, you know, people who wanted to make really flashy films for a lot of money and didn't seem very concerned with drama or writing or. Um, how visuals and writing could complement each other. So that's what I really wanted to do with this film. And uh, what I learned after adapting it was that short stories do not make good short films. It's not a one-for-one <laughs> one ratio. Um, they can, some do.
1: Which is not to I, include
3: yours, of course, but it's just another there are no hard and fast rules. Well, okay, Uh, I'm going to recommend that you don't go out, find a short story, and and adapt it. You know, a short story of uh, multi-pages. Like, if it's a three-page short story, maybe. I think scenes, ideas, moments end up making better short films than um, short short stories where a lot of time passes. But I I still, I'm proud of this film because, uh, and I, I was instilled with Uh, A lot of energy to make it because I I actually got permission from the author to make this film, which I was really like happy about. So I met Brian Evanson, this acclaimed author at like the Strand bookstore in New York. And we went and got coffee and he's like, I want you to make this film and make all the changes you want because it's yours. I'm like, holy shit! Wow. That's yeah, great. That was <laughs> exhilarating.
1: Did you have to sell um, him on your change. vision,
3: or was he just very excited? No, about no, no. He was like, it. "It sounds." He he saw my first film and was really excited okay. by it, and was like, "Seriously, do whatever you want. Like, pay me one dollar for the rights and go make the film." Uh, and I did. And um, I mean, again, like I said, I, I I don't think it's a success, but I think it's an interesting failure and I still think Mutter Tongue could make a great movie. I think it Why a don't you think it's a success? It. Well, I think it's just trying to condense too much into a short amount of time. 15 minutes isn't enough to really build up this main character's problems and it's a, it's a three it's almost a three act structure um, mm-hmm. condensed into a short film. And I could have played more with the visuals. Again, you're making this film on a very short timeline, so I'm making it in Three and a half days um, with a sizable crew and in small spaces. You know, I'm shooting in an apartment in New York. I'm shooting in a um, university facility for some of the teaching scenes. How big was your crew? Um, I think I had maybe 15 people mm-hmm. working on it on the big space. lot of people. Days. But, like, still, that's, that's a lot of people in a very small in a lot oh, yeah. of small rooms. That's what I'll always remember mm-hmm. about making this film. You know? One of the things I liked about this story, too, was it was about an educator. And so we got to – my visual reference for this was um, Conrad Hall's cinematography and searching for Bobby Fischer, believe Ooh. it or not. Um, I just love, like, old wooden rooms and, like, bright white lights. That's what I really wanted to do here. So you get that in the old school buildings and you get that in his old wooden office. Um, unfortunately, to get those places, I wasn't building sets. I had to go to small wooden offices and small schoolrooms. Um, so it was a little miserable packing everybody in there, and it was a really high-pressure situation. And like I said, making this a movie that's not driven by dialogue, but that certainly every word counts, and I wanted it to play back and forth with the visuals. I mean, there's some nice shots in there where he's going a little crazy at a certain point. You pull back and you see all these posted notes because he's really kind of losing his mind. That stuff's not elegant enough because of the amount of time I have to get it all done in, but... I still think there's a lot of cool visual ideas in it, but what frustrated me—I was really me, impressed.
2: But that post-it scene, I was—I was really impressed by the storytelling you managed to convey in that, where you have one surprise of her walking into the post-it, and then you uh, pan pan forward for the other other surprises. That's just visual storytelling that is not easy to think of when you were first becoming a student filmmaker.
3: Right, and it's that that sort of stuff isn't in the short. I don't, or in, it's not in the short story. So it was a lot about trying to convert certain ideas in the short story to visual motifs or visual ideas, um, and then carrying over some of the stuff that is directly in it. Um, And a lot of the beats, you know, the story is very funny uh, at times, and I think I had to lose a lot of the humor. There's a scene that got cut from the film where he's actually, uh, at a certain point, you know, he goes so crazy, he's cut off from his daughter, um, and he just feels a complete sadness. Like, he's ruining her life by just existing, uh, and that, I mean, that's a heavy emotion that you want to kind of cut with humor more. And with more time, I think you could have played with that dark humor. Uh, a scene I cut was him trying to phone nine one one because he's about to commit suicide, and you want uh, he wants the nine one one people to beat his daughter to their ha- house so she doesn't have to see him. Um, and he's trying to talk to the nine one one person, and of course he can't use his words, uh, so mm-hmm. it's all kind of getting mucked
1: up. And Although that's a that's, scene, uh, I mean, but- that's a great moment that I didn't think that I had seen before uh, or at least couldn't think of off the top of my head where she walks in on him with the massive shotgun in his mouth. Oh, he's fileting a shotgun. Well, that's the yeah, other yeah. thing. Like,
3: that is that a really silly image? Well, it's in the, it's in the story. It's a little strange. And, and I like how it plays in the film because it's not, it's not harrowing. It is funny. And it's supposed to be a little f- silly. Um, and that was the hardest thing to do, trying to get... A, and David, you kind of touched on this with... You know, having to answer so many questions with time of the essence, um, trying to manage these storytelling questions when you're in the moment, um, or or just getting all the footage that you can so you can massage it in the editing room into something. But for the for me, the hardest part of making this film. I, I knew the tone, and it was about getting these actors to really convey it through all these lines that really count. So I think my, my lead actor, this older gentleman, he was down for whatever. He would do anything I said. Um, and we were talking, you know, you always want to tell an actor what his motivation might be or talk to him about what he thinks. Um, and that, those were great conversations about where the character might be or how he might act. My, my younger actress was a student. And um, she had never done a movie before. She was a theater actress, and, you know, she's a very emotional individual. Um, I think college actresses are they are really in the zone all the time because they just live and breathe theater and acting and method. And this girl was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom and cry for 20 minutes. I, I need this to prepare. And I'm like, okay, okay. Um, and then she would get out there and do these really big scenes. You know, there's a scene in the film where... She is confessing to him, like, why won't you talk to me? Why won't you just tell me what's wrong? And he can't say anything because, one, he can't say anything, and, two, he won't even try. He really just wants to distance himself. And she was getting really emotional. That's good. We want that. Um, But what her technique was, and she would do this on stage, was hit herself. Oh, my God. Well, she would be like, I need to know what you want from this. And, like, Anyone listening to this knows that that sound is horrifying, and if you're wearing a microphone on your shirt, uh, that's bad. That's real bad. Um, And that's the sort of stuff where I'm like, okay, we're going to have to spend an extra hour on this, like, talking through this really important moment. We don't have enough time to actually do it, but can we, you know, can we calm this girl down but also channel all this emotion that she's bringing to the table. So those were the hardest parts about making it. I just monologued a ton. So, Dave, I know you watched this film and had questions about the direction, where I'm so obsessed with the writing, I think, about changing this short story into something palatable cinematically, but...
0: Yeah, I mean, I just engaged with it at a direction standpoint, because I knew that it was based on a short short story, but I had not read that short story. So for me, it was, I think i'm just much more complex uh than your other film because you put forth both films being like which one should i contribute to the podcast and i said that i think mutter tongue is more challenging because the other one i i guess like you said in the introduction you, you could feel that you have a hold on it and it's not that the emotions are easy it's just that in the amount of time that you go through it As soon as you As soon as I realized what was going on In your internment camp short I disengaged And mm. this one, each scene When it started, managed to pull me in In terms of what am I watching And then watching the your lead actors performance Where, like you said I could tell that you could get him to do anything Because it's not often You get good performances like that In some of your college shorts But it's like this one, just being the kind of director where so early in your career, you could manage two people having to act a scene where one walks in and the other one has a shotgun in your mouth. It's like you have to know the tone and direct them to it because when you're in on the day both actors are in the most vulnerable place they've been as actors and you sort of need to wrangle them for the greater good. But like you were saying, they both also have their emotional lives to go off of. I think this one was the way it ends a much more difficult movie to reckon with. And so I wanted people to see it. I,
3: I, I, it's interesting that you hone on to each scene. Seems like a surprise, which I think helped me direct the actors, because you can approach each moment kind of individually or, like, how it's propelling things forward. There's a lot of questions. And that's what I like talking to actors about, questions and seeing, you know, you have to let them make the decisions. And the nice thing about Mutter Tongue was that um, by having the lead actor always saying nonsense words, it almost becomes an acting exercise for them. The Mm. heightened Mm -hmm. drama really, um, well, it both helps and hinders. I think it helped him because he could just find emotion in nonsense you know the last uh phrase of the movie is tentpole motioning you know and so it doesn't have to be a hammy line it can just be it can be a true emotion which i i really i was just like drunk on all of these nonsense phrases but here's a question
2: i have oh yeah from a storytelling perspective I just—I couldn't figure out why the daughter wouldn't immediately think that he had dementia or a brain tumor. It seems so clear that, like, this—because it doesn't feel like it's set in a sci-fi world, and she gets so frustrated. And I guess part of that is that she's high school age, like, she might not be as aware of things, but I was was kind of puzzled by that part of the story.
3: Well, I—she doesn't see a lot of him having this problem. I don't—
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess she doesn't see him talk that much. Right.
3: As soon as he starts—he starts having his instances at school— He has that one moment when they're having dinner, and it's kind of, she reads it as a joke. It's like a dad joke that she doesn't get. And by the time he's teaching class and has this, like, mental breakdown, he's, like, closed off. So he's just not going to talk um, because he cannot communicate. So... I don't so know. It's somebody
2: who's taking something that might be a fairly common thing if you have, you say, dementia, and then dealing with it so poorly that he manages to cut himself
3: off. Yeah, it's hard. Well, this is when I start feeling like maybe the film slipped away from me because it's so tight in the book. It's like the the, page, the, the short story is just the right amount of pages. And for me, like I only had so much money, so much time. I needed to make a film that clocked in under 15 minutes because of a school requirement, not that... You know, yeah, this finished cut ends up going a little over. Um, I submitted something different. But I, I had a lot of restrictions that were upon me, and I couldn't just write the film, perhaps, that this story needed to be. Um, and hopefully I would urge everyone to be able to make that film as opposed to following the rules at school. I was a bit of a tool, you know. Um, shoot for the suits, no. Uh, but... Yeah. <laughs> But I think that was the hardest thing. There was just so much pressure to kind of deliver the requirements, plus be really... I wanted to be faithful to the story because I was so moved by the, the short, by Brian Evanson's writing. Um, but, of course, you have to, you have to it, condense, and it's tough.
1: It sounds like you were probably a lot more ambitious and involved than a lot of your other classmates.
3: I think, well, I think I was dramatically, not to toot my own horn, but certainly you see a lot of films that are like, let's just get the camera and go out and shoot some really cool shots, or, you know, there's definitely, I definitely went to school with someone who spent $60,000 on their short film doing a big Bollywood musical, and, you know, it looks, they shot on 35 millimeter. I I give myself props, I shot this on Super 16, this is on film, and I think it looks really good, but here's another story, um... You know, we shot on film. No one would have this problem anymore, but uh, we had a light leak on one of the big pivotal moments. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, The the big scene. You might want to explain what that is. Yeah, I know, right? That's insane. (laughs) So the scene where um, the girl is kind of yelling at her dad to just say something, open up to me, Um, his side, his coverage, shots of him. Um, had a giant red streak on the left side because the way that my assistant camera person packed the film in literally loaded it in there was it was just not 100 percent perfect and a little bit of light got onto the side of the frame and <laughs> so luckily you fired him immediately i i and murdered him. him i murdered him on <laughs> set um and that the blood streak is what you see you know mm. um but but what, you know, through Final Cut Pro Magic and through post-production houses, this was an experience working with, like, a legit post house that gave me a nice deal. Um, you know, you wash it away with certain, I don't even know, like, uh, the, the post process is such a mystery to me still. Like, what they can do in post is insane. You don't want to fix it in post. That's the worst phrase to uh, hear on a movie set But they really can fix it on post uh, It's just And really we blew it up expensive. a little bit So it didn't lose too much quality And washed the the color away And we tried our best You can still see it a little bit But yeah, there's always Going to be mishaps And of course it's going to be Over your most pivotal Dramatic scenes But mm-hmm. yep. yeah, that's mutter tongue I mean, it's I, I would always tell people To be ambitious But to make the film that your story demands to be, um, and some and and shoot it in the most economical way, but again, shoot it in a way that it deserves to be, and, and in all the places it deserves to be, and. I don't know. This this one needs more space. Perhaps one day there will be a Tongue feature film. Uh,
2: Tongue sequel.
3: Sequel. <laughs> Do I still have the rights? Do I still have the rights? Probably not. I think I got a, a like a one year deal to make the movie. Uh, I'd have to go back, and oh my god, I would not want to go through all that paperwork. But
2: two dollars.
1: I'm gonna be talking about the first film I ever made. It's called Proposals. Uh I haven't really thought about what I'm gonna say about it, uh, because I try not to think about this movie too much. Not because necessarily of how the movie turned out, it's uh it's just sort of my nature. I think even if I made something that, you know, people uh you know, far and wide, loved and, and clung onto, I would probably uh I wouldn't be able to bring myself to watch it. I I when we screened proposals at Anthology Film Archives, Dave uh, produced the film, he was one of the producers on it, um, and was instrumental in its making, uh, he was there. But I I could not be in the building. I had to be drinking hard across the street. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's one of the joys of a film as opposed to uh I don't know, having to be a director of theater or you know, somebody who acts, is that you can actually... Your your product, your, your art can exist independently of you, uh, which is definitely something that I appreciate. But uh, yeah, proposals is um, something that... I think there are little bits of, of everything that other people have already touched upon. Uh, some of it's follies. It was... Uh, and some of the mistakes, even though I had no idea what I was doing, um, I was aware of ahead of time and just... You know, at a certain point, uh, a project picks up enough momentum, for whatever reason, that that it's going to happen, and uh, suddenly realizing that you know that you're making a short film, your first short film, that is probably better suited to be a feature, rather than one of the, you know, uh, more... Uh, something that's equipped for success, like an eight-minute short film or one of those joke short films Dave was referring to, but making like a 20- 20 or 22-minute behemoth of a short film that's going to have a really difficult time getting programmed anywhere. Um, you know, I, that was a mistake I knew going into the process. I knew how long and, and sort of ungainly it was going to be. Um, And, uh, you know, I needed something to apply for film school. I wanted to go to film school as a director, and I needed an application. I had applied one year with nothing and was uh, rejected from Columbia and NYU, which are the only places I applied because I am too stubborn to want to leave New York. And um, uh, I made this film, and I think the best review that it could have received – and I guess the only one I was looking for was that that I got into film school the next year – but beyond that, I'm not sure I, I'm curious, how... what
3: Can I can I ask you a question about yeah, the film? Yeah. Well, first off, I want to say that um, At the screening of Proposals That I met my girlfriend So that's it holds a very special place in my heart um,
2: Fuck film school, that's what matters <laughs> Yeah, that's seriously
3: matters. Um, my I question, expect to have a seat my, of honor At your wedding <laughs> <laughs> My question <laughs> is So you reference these things like I don't know what I'm doing uh, And I figured it out along the way What are some of these things that like are the essentials of making a movie that you felt unsure about that seemed to kind of, you had to solve them, or you made a decision where you're like, yes, this is a component of film?
1: But it's, I mean, it, it, it boils down to what is a director what does a director do i mean like how do you define <laughs> what, what the responsibilities are um it's you know if you're like okay what is a day like directing it's really hard or it was certainly hard for me then to picture what it was like and um i you know one of my biggest regrets uh in hindsight was was really going you know balls to the wall for my first project i mean we raised A lot of money probably a lot more money than we needed to 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 make this film although all of the money was used well it was very well produced film i mean it was uh it couldn't have been a more nurturing environment thanks in part to dave and my other producers for a first-time filmmaker because i was surrounded uh by great uh great people who were very good at their jobs and i was very communicative with them or communicative with me and um you know i could talk through especially my dp todd von hazel a uh who is uh, you know you've you've seen his work he's really doing amazing stuff now um and uh with somebody i you know i i come from a sort of anyone who's listened to the show can probably imagine what kind of director i would be i'm very talkative i like to um i, I like to plan everything uh, and this you could you can see especially in this movie uh on screen for better or worse you know with my untrained eye and imagination at the time um everything was very meticulously planned even though i would throw out the rule book on the day because my plans i learned were not always very good uh but i would love to sit down with todd and have hour-long meetings or several hour-long meetings uh where we would discuss the films that we were referencing and what every shot meant and what we were hoping to get out of it and how they would cut together um and, uh, yeah, but, I mean, like, what? how I didn't know what I was doing, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what a day would be. I didn't know how long it would take to set up a shot. I didn't know how much downtime I would have. I didn't know how to fill that downtime productively. I would end up just to keep my nerves at bay uh, playing, like, games on my iPad or whatever. I think I just got oh an, God, an I iPad. I would have murdered you if I was your yeah. answer. Yeah.
0: Um, well you know we shot I don't think I saw da- I don't think I saw David <laughs> while, okay. while the shoot was actually we'll, we'll get to well, that but there's you know, a lot of locations on the
1: shoot well you know the um, in part because of how well it was planned um, and in part not on my part I mean just the production was organized part and in part because of how well it was planned uh, you know, on a shot-by-shot shot level, and, it's, and how long we took to set up certain shots because of what we wanted, there was a lot of downtime. There was a lot of downtime, and and it's not necessarily an excuse for me. There are fun subsequent projects where we have not had nearly as luxurious a schedule. Um, I have definitely been much more constructive in my time, but I was also so nervous that I needed just something to do, because there are, def- there are hours for a time where um, you're as confident as you can be in your vision. And... Um, you know if you just sit there and stew about it you 're going to question it And we're you know you always want to make yourself available to your crew and we had an enormous crew, I think there were like thirty or forty i mean it was an enormous enormous crew um, and uh you know it was it, it, it was very nurturing again, you know probably excessively so for a first time filmmaker um, but it, I had so many of the things that I would kill for now that I have a little bit more idea i 've made um, two subsequent sort of intense real shorts, um, which had nowhere near the production value, but uh, um, were definitely uh, a lot more in my control. Uh, I was a little bit more in control of what I wanted to do with them. And, uh, you know, I, w- I would kill for the privileges that I misused or abused or didn't, you know, sort of took for granted uh, for proposals the first time around. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I watching it now, which is something I don't do, but I just watched like 15 or 30 <laughs> seconds of it uh, in Right before we started recording the show, um, I can see the ideas very clearly that I wanted. I wasn't, you know, so what Katie was saying at the beginning, I surrounded myself with people that I liked. Um, and I'm always in awe of filmmakers like Werner Herzog or Lars von Trier who court uh madness and friction and i think that you know it's not the right path for everybody um you know there are so many filmmakers who make people make movies with people they love and who love them back but um you know you see the antagonistic relationship between Werner herzog and klaus kinski and the work that resulted from it and was made possible by it and you know i i wonder if if casting a good friend of mine because i was comfortable working with her even you know i like her very much as an actress but uh, casting her as my main actress because i knew that um, that we could get along, and like casting a guy who I who I thought was nice, and like making sure that everyone was nice and happy. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the recipe for uh, good filmmaking.
3: It's, it's really interesting you say that because I helped our colleague and frequent fighting in the war room guest Jordan Hoffman make a movie in my early days here in New York, and our actress was the wife of the co-director and we had an amazing time making this movie it's called body antibody i urge people to see this movie i have it's seen actually, body antibody it's actually really really good i, I really it like very it enjoyable. i'm not just saying that um, and but working with the actress who you know has an in with production makes it very difficult because you're too friendly, you can't work. It can't be as professional. I mean, I, that's an ob, that might be obvious, but for for mm. talking
1: drama, uh, I think it's especially. That's, well, that's that's I don't know not know that's that what he wasn't the was issue. Uh, I uh, I was yeah. never. We were hyper professional. It was uh, you know we had fun. Well, do you think and it, it makes a, it
3: difficult to talk drama
1: then? No, I push Sarah's buttons pretty hard. I'm not afraid of of. Push it. I'm not afraid of getting what I want, and and certainly I'm a lot less afraid of getting what I want now. I wouldn't than be afraid of a director then. saying
3: be like pushing. I i right. be more afraid of the push back.
1: Like there's w- there was not uh, you know I'm not you know the, I was not directing my girlfriend. I was not directing somebody who I'd known for 20 years. I mean I'm very friendly with Sarah who was our actress, but she was not you know like a like she and I. I did not have this sort of relationship where there was like deep grudges and uh, things that we could really do to one another. Um, You know, I I, uh, I, I wanted just a little bit of a comfort factor. Um, I wanted to know – I mean I guess what it really boils down to is I wanted to know – Or I wanted to at least be able to convince myself that these people liked me, (laughs) that they trusted (laughs) what I was trying to do. Uh, And that, I think, has has become less important to me as we go on. Uh, It's been difficult sometimes because of how um, the practical elements of making movies at this budget level, because oftentimes, uh, like in proposals, actually, like in all parts of all of the movies I've made, much to my parents' chagrin, I've shot in my parents' house. And when you have people who are in your house house and or staying at your house, whatever. I mean there's like this added element of of intimacy and personalness to it where it just like the onus seems that much more and also I think before you have something um to convince them with. I mean I think I, I don't know if any of the things that I've made thus far would uh, it would be much for an actor or actress to say like, okay, I really trust in this person. But I think that if I made one feature, let's say, or one really impressive short that I could hang my hat on, uh, that I could show to people and say like, this is the caliber of the sort of thing that we're going to make. And they could see that, um, I would be so much more comfortable while making the new thing. I mean, it's the same as writing my first article for a new outlet. I mean, this is definitely an experience that pretty much everyone here can relate to, um, you know, it's when you when they come after you when they know who you are because you have this pedigree and you have this proven track record. You're not n- sweating, you know, bullets the same way that you would be otherwise. Yeah, but really- I think
3: I think that's very difficult to do, even in like big productions. I don't think that people really have that confidence from every member of their crew. Well, they really there's always someone to impress. you have to
1: leave He's right. There's always someone you have to impress and they may not necessarily even be on your crew. I mean they may be a new person, uh, certainly new tiers of of audience members and and new money people and new – I mean there's always people you have to impress. But I just – the central buy-in from your central people, I was just – and I'm also arguing your side here where I'm saying that I was too involved in – needing to impress these people and and i've you know i've remained friendly with a lot of people from the set and when i hear sort of secondhand everyone says they had such a phenomenal time on the set and it makes me feel good as like a host but that's not really what my job was you know my job was to make the best film i could i think i did make the best film that i could at the time of course all these lessons are in retrospect um and you know i i uh I also don't know why the, uh, this the is, this is aspect ratio is so fucked up on Vimeo and it's so low quality, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there.
0: This this is interesting from a perspective of that's what you got out of making this movie.
2: What, Dave? You were the only. This is the only film we're talking about in which which two of us were on set. So, Dave. I mean, sort of.
0: David was on set for my movie. He was just I was hiding like a in my room. Game yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> David, how do you how do you remember proposals starting?
1: Uh Oh. Um.
0: Because I mean, I'd be interested to hear what what your memory of it was. Well,
1: my memory of anything isn't really great because uh, I have a bad memory. But I um, I wrote the it script. Was it was three a.m. and I was high 3,
3: on 3 Ambien.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much. No, I I wrote the script and I remember. Ray, talking to Rachel Walker and, and thinking like, I really, I gotta make something um, and I remember sending her the script and being like, this is the story that it's gonna be and um, I'm sure that memories would return to me very quickly uh, if if you queued them so up <laughs> but,
0: I was uh, just meeting you and Rachel Walker and figuring out what we all sort of had in common and it was crazy that I missed Rachel at NYU and all that stuff and you actually gave me the script and said, "This is either a movie or what I'm going to get into film school with."
2: It and was re- both.
0: It well, it ended up being both. I mean, when he said movie, I think you meant like full length feature, because there's definitely like I could show you the part in proposals right now where the rest of the movie goes, but. It's not important. (laughs) And then uh, I remember sort of being like, yeah, I think we could help you do this. And then, you know, sort of with Loose Talks coming up with a funding plan. But at some point it became, we're going to let David have a full film shoot so that he could use all these tools and sort of like learn those mistakes. Yeah. And then even when... Oh god. Even when we were fundraising, which I think is very important also to tell other people who are attempting to fundraise, never promised any sort of return. We raised all of that money by telling people this is what David wants to do and you're investing in like his further filmmaking career, you're not gonna get a monetary investment back.
1: Right. And I think the downside of that is that I probably tapped some sources some resources that would have been better saved for when I knew what I was doing for a project a little further down the line. Um, but I do, you know, certainly endorse that strategy of appealing to people, of not misleading them, of, of, uh, you know, pre- saying that they're investing in you more than this short film, which of course is never really going to make any money. Um, but I mean, I learned a tremendous amount from making the film about, I learned, I, I just I learned a lot about how the way that I see movies translates, um, you know, on a creative level, and uh, how. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't want
0: to I don't want to overly flatter you, but because I had to get so involved, because you and I had a ton of conversations early on about what the script was about, it's always interesting to me that I think I'm going to view this movie differently from everybody else. Because in our conversations, I it was weird because I always came from it as a movie about Sarah's character and I think you came from it for a more idea about how relationships exist in the same world as movies that are talking about relationships (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so that was something that didn't like massage out in the edit so it's interesting to hear you talk about how you cast this one, you know, sort of anchor character and then cast everybody else around it. I sort of saw that happening and thought that was intentional and that was your choice. Well, like, to I me, mean, the movie still about the decisions that she makes and
1: Sarah whatnot. came into the project early on and, and wanted to be a producer and I, I'm not sure how the decision was arrived. I certainly never had a problem with it. Um, and so we sort of built the movie around her uh, by virtue of the degree of her involvement in the movie. Um, you know, not in a way too far removed from how, like, Angelina Jolie shows up on Maleficent and suddenly, you know, you sort of, like, <laughs> build the the movie around there. I don't know if that's <laughs> well, accurate. But, I mean, I, mean I, I like, you know, I like that I, I, I... It's encouraging to me on some level to hear that the movie even raises the possibility for um, different in- interpretations because I always fear that I think too didactically and want to put these ideas in boxes but also part of the things one of the things I learned of the project was that even if you feel like and this applies to film criticism as well when people you know get wrapped up in talking about the creator's intent, the author's intent is that even if you feel like you have a very narrow interpretation of your story you're telling uh, that has no bearing on how unless you make it like so instructive that, um you know it, it it suffocates other readings uh it doesn't really have any bearing on how people are going to read it and so um you know i look at the movie now and uh well not really I look at 15 seconds of the movie now and i look at the ending and and i still think that uh it's a really unhappy and pathetic ending uh and people i remember at least when i talked to people about this movie a way long time ago remember like i remember a lot of them saying like it's a nice ending, and it's a sweet ending, and others feeling differently. Well, so.
0: I mean, I don't want to close out your own segment for you, but for me, Proposals will always be a movie about somebody that has the relationship she wants but doesn't know it until she sees it play out on screen like the movies that she loves. And I think every scene pushes towards that, uh, sure. that goal. And if it didn't, I would have told you not to shoot that scene. <laughs> uh okay
1: well <laughs> i uh well that's that was my experience here's uh, the big here's
3: my big question did you ever? you had a script supervisor yeah did you ever listen to your script supervisor yeah
1: i mean <laughs> i don't i She's mean he's wearing
0: I, a lot of different dresses passion yeah our,
1: our 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 script supervisor, I think, what the role that I really remember in that capacity was, uh, one of our producers served on set as a first AD, and um, I felt like one of the things that I could have done better was to be a little bit less of a uh, control freak about the script supervision, about like let, and this is easier the. Bigger production in some ways, you have is like letting people do their job, letting right. them steer you on course, um, and letting you know not to forget anything, and, and trust in them catching things that fall through the cracks. And that it all goes back to my philosophy of being so open and transparent with the entire crew about what you're doing. Uh, I mean, I don't think, uh, of course, the script supervisor is a pivotal role that would have to know the script forwards to backwards, um, but uh, you know, front to back, but you know I, I i think I could have been more mentally present for some of the decisions that were happening in real time and make adjustments on the fly mm. if I wasn't myself so caught up often needlessly um uh, because of redundancies in uh in making like sure oh like are we doing this this minor 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 detail so on and it's so
3: on. it's It's interesting because on one hand, yes, you have to. Um, give yourself over to these people, these jobs. The AD is going to tell you that you need to be done in 10 minutes or your script supervisor is going to tell you, well, it wasn't exactly the same in that one shot. Um, And sometimes you have, you you must listen because it's going to be a disaster. If you don't, you need to know when to listen. Sometimes you need to know when not to and, and know that, well, we're going to have to go over time in this one moment and we'll have to sacrifice it later. We need this beat. This is pivotal. I know I'm going to need this footage or No, it doesn't matter. Stop obsessing with the little details about this continuity. We're going for the drama here. Sorry, script (laughs) supervisor. And I found myself—that's something I definitely learned on this second film, where I'm just, like, getting in the zone of being in the drama when it comes down to a day on set and knowing the story well enough that, like, I know who to listen to when— or who can stomp yeah. all over me at a certain point? Because, but I think to one of the on most
1: valuable one of the most valuable things a script supervisor can do, um, you know, of course, if there's a glaring continuity error uh, and it can be avoided, you want it brought to your attention. But um, you know, I think if there are just questions that can be asked of the director, just things that you don't want to have to look back and be like, why didn't I think of that? Why wasn't? Why didn't I open my eyes and just think of this one dramatically? applicable question like why is this character doing this thing doesn't it conflict with something else they they did Um, I think someone who is just always thinking about the script even when you're thinking about the light and the actress's hair and this and that um, is very valuable and can manifest itself in a number of different ways
2: That them does it for the, the first quarter Qual for Fighting in the War Room. Moral of the story is the kids, babies don't, don't, babies don't make like movies you like unless you want to make like movies. Like this, in which case, like make this, movies a and pretty learn good from our mistakes.
0: Perfect. Young listeners. Took us a while to get there, but perfect.
2: Yeah. We'll be back on Friday with a double review of The Fall in Our Stars and Edge of Tomorrow. Which do, actually, could you switch those titles for those movies? and still be uh, Edge of Our Stars Faults of Tomorrow or like uh, like Edge of Tomorrow is set in space but could be about Fault Our Stars and uh, Edge of Tomorrow is about you know like living for the moment because you have cancer
3: yeah I don't know we'll
2: discuss this further in the meantime please tell the people who you are
3: yes I am Matt Patches I write on the internet um, all over the place and I try and put all my work at mattpatches.com and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches and uh, remember you can watch our short films at uh, on our website fightinginthewarroom.com slash XXV and you can see all the, the posts on site, and comments and share and all that again fightinginthewarroom.com
1: I'm David Ehrlich you can find me Writing on uh, The Dissolve and at uh, the AV Club and uh, some other places. And you can find all of us together on uh, Facebook at Fighting in the War Room, where uh, we are all on the Facebook.
0: Dave Gonzalez, by the first part DA7E. I write about superhero movie news and rumors and Star Wars at latino Review.com. You can call us the podcast at 914-410-6450 and tell us your song of the summer we've gotten a lot of comments on our music episode i'm listening to some albums that some of you have recommended to me you should definitely let us share that with everybody by calling into that hotline number it is again 914-410-6450
2: and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T E Y R I C H. You can also find the entire podcast on Twitter at F I T W R. There are no lightning round questions this week, but you can talk to us anyway. And, uh, you know, make up your own if you want to. We'll talk about it later. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.
0: And if he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of Of if he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning, I'm a
2: thousand pieces of light.